everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here. We have a great show for you today. We have joining us Eugene Purrier, who is a host at Breakthrough News. He's a journalist, he's an author, and he's going to be talking to us about a New York Times smear. McCarthy hit piece that accuses some people of being spreaders of pro-China disinformation. So that's going to be really fun to look at, as you can imagine. Also, we are going to be talking about Niger and some headlines and reacting to some clips. So please make sure you do like this stream. And to do that, you just give it a thumbs up. Also, please make sure you subscribe. You hit subscribe and then you press the bell. If you can, become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. It's what makes this show possible. You get from last week a very good chat, extended chat with Freddie DeBoer about AOC. And so I highly recommend it. Patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And I think that's it. I think we can just jump into it. And today is a rare day where my guest is also capable of kibitzing, if you will about headlines and media clips. I sometimes divide that up, but not on this episode. So we're going to bring on Eugene Purrier. Hello. Hello, Katie. It's good to be here and to kibitz with you. Thank you. Thanks for kibitzing. It's actually kibitzing. You see, we're already kibitzing. We're already doing like a cultural exchange. There it is. I'm not just a fun person. I'm a teacher. Well, listen, I appreciate that. You're welcome. So we have some good clips to look at. Let's start off with, remember this guy? CNBC's Jim Cramer. He's kind of like the crazy Eddie of CNBC. Yeah, throws stuff at the screen. Yeah. So we have a great clip of him. He's reacting to some scary to him news. So just to set up the context here. So Jim Cramer is very afraid of UAW President Sean Fain, whom he thinks is a Marxist. And let me just go to an article at Common Dreams to hear what he has to say. What Sean Fain has to say. So Fain, who was elected to lead the union, the UAW, earlier this year, announced members' demands earlier this week in a speech broadcast on Facebook Live, highlighting the need for a significant pay raise to make up for years of concessions by the union following the Great Recession, the rising cost of living and inflation, and to match pay increases enjoyed by the CEOs of the Big Three. Quote, Big Three CEOs saw their pay spike 40% on average over the last four years, said Fain. We know our members are worth the same and more, end quote. Ahead of a September 14th deadline, after which the UAW could go on strike, the union is demanding an immediate 20% pay raise, followed by an additional 5% raise in each year of the four-year contract. The union is also calling for a return of the defined benefit pension, which would give retired workers a set amount of money each month, the right to strike if a company threatens to close a plant, more paid time off, restored cost of living allowance increases, and other provisions. Fain also spoke about the potential to shift to a 32-hour work week to allow workers to spend more time with their families. And then he says, our members are working 60, 70, even 80 hours a week just to make ends meet. That's not a living. 
We have to work longer and harder to maintain the same standards of living. That means missing Little League games and family reunions. That's barely surviving and it needs to stop. In his address earlier this week, Fain said that automakers can easily afford to substantially increase workers' wages. The companies have made a quarter of a trillion dollars in North American profits over the past 10 years and reported a combined $21 billion in profits in the first half of this year. Record profits mean record contracts, said Fain. They've been competitive on our backs and it's time they pay up. So this is absolutely horrifying to Jim Cramer. Let's hear him react to it. I mean, you were looking for any signal of uh, labor peace. Well, you want you want labor war. Take a look at this things that Sean Fain is saying about it, autos. autos. I mean, he's talking about a work week that's incredibly short. He's talking about going back to defined benefit. He's basically talking about uh, that class that I had about the Spartacus Workers League and how Marx was wrong because Marx felt that there that there, there, that there should be some capitalism. Only the workers belong. This man, this man studied Trotsky. I got to tell you, study Trotsky before. Okay, Jim Cramer has Trotsky dar. We're pre-ice picking ear. You think you think some of the week? Ice picking ear? Did Trotsky get? I know he took an ice, but I think of an ice pick to the. I think head. it was actually to the back of the the head. Yeah, I, I don't know the ear thing. Maybe it doesn't really matter. He's not the Trotsky expert he claims to be. No, he's certainly not. This this morning is about reading. I, I mean, I'm the guy. Fitch. Walter Ruther now. Walter Ruther seems like he's a, a man of peace. Uh, it is <laughs> just, deep cut. Just, you just have to take pump the brakes there in a little bit. I mean, it is a deep cut, but for anyone who knows anything about Walter Ruther in the UAW, who's a man of peace, everything that Sean Fain was talking about in the context of what he wants are exactly the type of contracts that Walter Ruther used to sign with the big three every single time. So I don't know. He's obviously not the expert on anything that he claims to be, so-called financial expert. I, th- I have to tell you that if this guy... If Sean Fain, who is the UAW head, if he gets his way, you can short every single auto company until the cows come home. They will be the least competitive companies on earth. There are companies in France right now who are saying, holy cow, what are we doing working Wednesday and Thursday? Why can't we be like Ford Motor? Uh, well, they present to GM today. It must stop. I mean, honestly, yeah. honestly, this is not capitalism. All right. It's not capitalism. It's some other form I took seven courses on communism at Harvard because I was in a particularly bad period at Harvard. I, there should be an eighth course, Sean Fain, and what he had to do with Engels. It was Marx and Engels and Fain. We're going to watch it, that contract. Marx, you know about Marx and Engels, but do you know about Marx and Engels and Fain? Yeah, I mean, that's like the new five heads. Just replace Stalin with Sean Fain, I guess. Exactly. You got it. I mean, it's just, I mean, the hyperbole is crazy. I mean, I guess on a show that's designed for Wall Street bankers, you know, I think Jim Cramer knows this very well. And I think a lot of it is actually very knowing, dissembling, because the only people who watch these like daytime shows on CNBC are Wall Street traders and other people like that. You got to keep them interested somehow. So you're throwing a bunch of red meat to the audience or whatever with these ridiculous statements. But I mean, you know, obviously the point's been made there by Sean Fain, $21 billion in profits in the first half of this year. And let's not forget that these are also the companies that are getting free money from the federal government for the so-called transition to electric vehicles, where they are destroying tens of thousands of jobs potentially from auto workers because you need fewer people to build these new plants. But I believe it was $9.2 billion dollars that Ford received from the Biden administration with no strings attached vis-a-vis the issues of workers' rights, even though Biden says, oh, I'm here for workers, I'm good for workers, I'm the best for workers, but just gave them free money to set up a new EV-related plant 
where there, you know, could be a union, might not be a union, don't have to pay people. And, you know, the point that he's making there is key. I mean, you got people working these 10 hour swing shifts, people whose bodies are being completely and totally destroyed, which people don't talk about with auto workers on the assembly line, but it's a huge, huge issue that's going on there. And, you know, it's getting worse and worse. And it's an industry that, you know, really pioneered the idea of quote unquote lean production. You know, you talk about Amazon and what's going on in the warehouse. You talk about the 57 second minute from Toyota, which is designed to make sure that almost every single second you are at your station, you are in motion, eliminating breaks to be as short as they possibly can, extending the workday, making people work overnight. I mean, it's extraordinarily difficult to be an auto worker in almost every possible way. So they are not paid lavishly. They are actually paid underpaid from my perspective in terms of what these CEOs are making. And in terms of what really happens, that's why they want to find pension benefits because when they have to retire, they really have to retire. You can't just really go get a second job. You know, your back is out, your knees are gone. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Sean Fain, you know, the so-called Marxist. I, I definitely don't think he is a Marxist. I will say his press director for the UAW is in DSA. So maybe that is a sign that this is a secret Marxist plot to destroy America. But it seems like they're basically just asking for what they had in 1983 as opposed to any big new thing. So it seems more than fair. In fact, you could argue that perhaps they're being generous to the auto companies with what they're asking for, quite frankly. Well, Eugene, you sound like someone who is going to be part of the big five yourself with those ideas. Well, you know, I listen, if I could replace any of them, I would be honored, quite frankly, yeah. since I have not really accomplished that much. <laughs> yes, you have. First of all, you've made it to the Katie Halber show, which is in itself huge. Well, that is true. Don't sell yourself short. I keep thinking it's Sinn Féin that they're talking about. Well, you know, some say Sinn Féin is Marxist too. So there's a there's a parallel there, I guess. So, all right, let's go to our next clip. Let's go now to MSNBC. Over at MSNBC, Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski are pretty nervous about Cornell West presidential run. But don't worry, because Al Sharpton offers some wise words. Let's take a look. George W. Bush would have never been elected in 2000 without Ralph Nader. Um, Donald Trump would have never been elected in 2016 without Jill Stein. I'm wondering in 2024, will we be looking back saying Donald Trump would have never been reelected and uh, continued his assault on American democracy, except for the candidacy of, say, Cornell West or... So one thing, I think we talked about this last week with Freddie DeBoer, but no one ever blames the centrist Dems who voted for Bush. Yeah, the 250,000 Democrats, I believe it was, who voted for Bush in Florida. Democrats, no right. one ever says that. Or Al Gore himself, yes. who had he gone for a full state recount, almost certainly would have won, but didn't want to go for a full state recount because he didn't want to seem like he was disruptive to the system. So, right, a bad team player. Yeah. Or a no-labels candidate. Now, let's, again, just be clear, I feel like I have to say this. You talk to anybody, no labels, they will tell you they have one goal, and that's keeping Donald Trump out of the White House. So we'll see what happens there. But let's just talk about Cornell West. Um, you know, how, how, how devastating is it uh, if Cornell takes two, three, four percent from Joe Biden in 2024? Well, uh, Joe, I think. Uh, 
if he takes that two to three percent, it's going to be from the constituencies that we just talked about. And I think that could absolutely right. make the difference. Donald Trump will be elected or not reelected, I think, based upon uh, no labels and, and Green Party's Cornell West. I don't think there's any question about his inability to get a majority of the American electorate and a majority of the uh, of the Electoral College. Jarev, let's engage on that subject real quick. I had a story uh, this week about Democrats being nervous about exactly this scenario, that it would, because this is race is going to be close. So just on the margins, whether it is a no labels candidate, those close to the president are far more concerned about a Cornell West figure or the professor himself stealing away just enough progressive young votes, black votes, whatever it might be to tip the scales. Now, most Democratic and even big uh, progressive names like Bernie Sanders and AOC have all said, no, 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 we have to stay with the president. The stakes are too high. But we have seen Donald Trump made some inroads with black men in 2020. How does this, how do you combine all these things? How worried should the White House be? Again, message and messenger. The, the question is, and, and I know and have a lot of respect for Cornel West. I've not talked to him since he announced. So I don't know what his strategy is. But I think the way you handle this is do we, with a Donald Trump looming, do we want to make a statement or do we want a government? And I think that you've got to talk to people just that clear. We absolutely need to make statements. But do we do it at the expense of losing government, a government that we see is bent on erasing everything that was uh, won for blacks, for women, for gays since the civil rights movement? And I think you take this head on. Rather than ignore it, rather than having something wrong with your body and you don't go to the doctor, you deal with the potential problems, you deal with the issues that are being raised, which may be the reason they're running. And if you deal with the issues, I think that you have people will make a real mature decision. That actually kind of surprised me. That last part, he actually seemed to be saying, deal with the critiques that they're making, which you never hear. Yeah, no, I think that's because Al Sharpton, whatever his problems, has a much better grasp than almost every single other person in the political sphere that would be on MSNBC of the sort of subset of the population that doesn't often vote, that's sort of shaky on voting. And that is critical of the Democrats, at least as it concerns the black working class and black young people. And I think he uncertainly knows, even though he used the phrase steal or someone used the phrase steal, that, you know, you can't steal a vote. You have to earn a vote one way or the other. And so if the perception is that the Biden administration is not actually doing anything for these people, of course, he won't get the vote. And of course, somebody else might be able to get those votes. So I'm not super shocked by it, but I think the whole discussion. Well, what's shocking is that it's on MSNBC. No, of course, of course. But they have to let some things through in MSNBC because since that's the liberal network of choice, they have to give the liberals some sense of like, how do we actually succeed, you know, as opposed to just the normal blowhard nonsense that they have going on. But yeah, I mean, the whole thing is just so wrapped in so many tropes from A, that you steal votes. I don't even, what is that? Like there is no, prior to the election, there's no like vote bank that you control. You have to earn them. I mean, secondarily, and to some degree to speak to what Sharpton is saying, I mean, they're not really addressing the big issue at all, that the the Biden administration in the White House, which claims to be the best White House ever for the black working class, unemployment, all these other things that they claim to be saying, Bidenomics, the economy is so great, they're fighting for this, they're fighting for that. I mean, if they're so great, why is the White House freaking out that they're not going to be able to get more votes from black people and potentially lose the election because of it? And as I've pointed out before several times in the past two elections, You can go to liberationschool.org, liberationschool.org, and you can read some of my analysis on the 2020 election. In the past two elections, what you have is a a decline 
in either both the share or the percentage or both in almost every single area that's majority black people, cities, counties, and so on and so forth. So you can already see that there's a distinct erosion happening in the people who vote, not to mention the large number of people who don't vote or don't vote regularly. So why is it that the so-called best ever when Trump is so bad is still having trouble? I mean, it's basically acting as if the actual experiences of the people they're talking about don't matter at all. Because again, if Trump is so bad and the Democrats are so great, it shouldn't even, you, why would they even be worried about Cornell West? So I think that's the most interesting thing is that they're basically admitting that the Biden administration, which, you know, I think on most of the issues that were mentioned were undoubtedly, uh, you know, they're probably doing better than Trump, but that ultimately that is such a low bar that in the context of how big the crisis is, especially in urban America, uh, you know, people are, are not moved by it because they're basically saying we're not even getting close to what you need. But since we're further ahead than the other guy, you should give us credit for not solving the problems that you have. Yeah, it's the but Trump philosophy. Yeah, I mean, 100 percent, which, by the way, I mean, we could go back longer than this, but let's just go back to Ronald Reagan in 1980. The Democrats have sold a lesser of two evils every single election. And somehow the politics have only gone further to the right. So when people say, well, don't support these third party candidates, don't do this, don't do that. I mean, quite frankly, when you look at the times where, you know, the more, most left wing sort of pushes were coming, that's in the times where there were the most sort of left-wing opposition politics. I mean, this was certainly the case in 1936 and Franklin Roosevelt's election. It was absolutely the case in 1948 when Harry Truman was elected. It was absolutely the case in 1964. Um, you know, in some ways it was the case uh, during both Nixon presidencies, even though he tapped a deep vein of the right wing, uh, extreme racism. He also was throwing out universal health care, the EPA, all these other things to try to speak to the fact that there is a huge extra parliamentary opposition. Um, you could also say the same thing is true in 2020, that the issue of the, the Biden campaign, the, the uprising against race, uh, the uprising against racism, the COVID issue, the Bernie campaign, all of these things went to give a certain cast to how the Biden administration came in and put out Build Back Better. So there really is actually no evidence when we look at the actual history that some, that if you if you have a, a further right lesser of two evils blah 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 that you're going to get a more progressive reality when in fact what you're going to get is an incre increasingly rightward moving show and it's only when the system itself the establishment from both sides feels deeply shaken by the mass uprising of the people represented in the streets and at the ballot box that they then start saying, oh, we better give people something to appease them. So, I mean, ultimately, if what you really want is a more progressive United States, you're probably better off giving more support to third party candidates and forcing the others to respond, um, you know, to that reality. Uh, so I don't know. There's more we could say about that. But there's interesting. Not. Yeah. Hot take. Interesting. I mean, I thought we were just going to be riffing and laughing, but Eugene is too smart for that. I only drop facts. It's too serious out here. You know what I'm saying? Planets being destroyed. We got to keep moving forward. That's true. But we use the humor to bring people in. But no, what you're saying is that's a whole, I mean, we could have a whole debate over that, but we'll save that for another show. We could. We did have a debate over that in the 2020. We did. Yeah, you're right. You remember I won handily and that others who made many claims turned out to be false, especially around the Iran deal. Won't say any names. But, you know, some some spurious claims were made and it turned out they were wrong and I was right. So it was an incorrect prediction that Biden would return to the Iran deal. Yes. And I was told I should. I was bad. I wanted Iranian kids to die because I wouldn't vote for Biden. So you go back and look that up. You look who said that. And, you know, there it is. You do want Iranian kids to die, but that's unrelated. That's just a, a thing you've always wanted. I, I kid, obviously, guys, not at all. So let's go to our next clip. We have some more electoral politics stuff to talk about. 
Now, I don't know if you guys have heard of him, but for lots of people, he's much more appealing than Cornell West. His name is Dean Phillips. He's a centrist Minnesota Democrat, member of Congress, and the media really wants him to run. We've talked about this on Useful Idiots a lot, but not last weekend, the weekend before, Chuck Todd brought him up as a possible formidable opponent for Biden. Then they had him on Face the Nation. And the guy isn't even committing to running. He just wants someone to challenge Biden. And they're talking about him like he is a candidate or a nominee even. And, you know, they don't talk about Marianne Williamson or RFK. They don't bring those guys on the show, but they bring this guy on, Dean Phillips. So let's take a look at this Dean Phillips clip. Here is Fox News bringing us some Dean Phillips knowledge. His name is Dean Phillips. He's a Democrat from Minnesota. And while he says he's not quite ready to run, he is prepared, but he doesn't have the donors lined up and stuff like that. The Democrats need to have a competition with Joe Biden. Watch him. Here he is. I've discovered that everybody in the middle, the massive majority of Americans, are sick of angertainment, telling us we're more divided than we really are. They're sick of members of Congress, state houses, attacking each other instead of attacking problems. They want their families back, their friendships back, their communities back. They want unity. And I want to give voice to them. And then secondly, Mm -hmm. I want to give voice to Democrats. Democrats are telling me that they want not a coronation, but they want a competition. You know what? The the polls say the same exact thing. So this guy, Dean Phillips, congressman, relatively new, uh, talked talked about uh, sitting down, watching uh, television, said, I got to go help out. I got to help the country. Goes into Congress. He said he loved it. Now he says he wants to be president. And look at these stats. He didn't say he wants to be president at all. (laughs) <laughs> in fact, on the face of the nation, he very humbly says, like, I think I'm well positioned to be president. I'm not well positioned to run for president, <laughs> which is like, you got to love it. I'm going to say the same thing about myself. I'm well positioned to be president, just not that well positioned to run. But. That's true. Yeah. The Democratic Party is looking for somebody else. Yeah, he says he's not yet decided if he's going to run against Joe Biden, but he is encouraging other people to jump in, which would be nice if we saw uh, more people jump in as Democrats. He cited this poll from the New York Times. It mm-hmm. says that most people would prefer someone other than Joe Biden. Look at this. Democrats, uh, 45% want to nominate Biden, but 50% want to nominate a different person. Right. And he's. Wow. That's really crazy. Yeah. That's pretty much every single poll so far. I mean, I, I actually, I have not seen one poll yet. Now, I'm not saying they're not out there, but I personally have not seen one poll yet where a majority of Biden voters in 2020 want him to be the nominee now there might be a that are like resigned but when it's like do you want him to be the nominee he pretty much always falls short of a of a majority of his own supporters so that should say something but let's blame cornell west he's meeting with donors uh and the number one concern they're concerned about uh joe biden's age and the best ability to lead going forward uh Regarding Cornell West, who's running as a third party, Phillips doesn't like him because he could actually take votes away from Democrats. So ultimately, he is a Democrat. He wants the Democrats to win. And Cornell West uh, poses an existential threat to a Democrat in the White House. Well, there's a few things. One, I love the amount of notes they have there. Oh, my God. I was thinking of the same thing. They're so <laughs> visible with it. It's almost like they're showing off. Well, I feel like when it's Fox and Friends, you got to kind of go the extra mile to make it seem like you're coming from some level of like facts, knowledge or whatever, since we know that like Fox and friends is sort of like a fact free kind of zone ultimately. But after I think everything with the lawsuits and everything that happened, they probably just like, listen, guys, we got notes. And then if something happens, they can say, my intern gave me the wrong notes. What do you want me to say? I have the wrong notes. But you know, I just, I mean, Dean Phillips, I actually once 
met Dean Phillips. It was very briefly. I don't even really know what to say about it. It was in Minneapolis after the uprising, like a couple of days after George Floyd had been killed. And we were both at a press conference of mothers whose children or other loved ones had been, uh, you know, in some cases, spouses killed by the police in the Minneapolis area. It was a very heart-wrenching press conference. So, I mean, in all fairness to him, I think everyone there was crying, but that was sort of, we were all kind of having an emotional moment. But I just remember he gave this very heartfelt speech about how people from the suburbs needed to do more. Um, I haven't really checked on him, so I don't know if he is doing more, but in a way, I kind of feel like the fact that I haven't heard a lot about it kind of speaks to the fact that he's probably not. Well, you are in luck because I have an update for you. Oh, good. Am I defaming him or is he actually? Far from it. No. Let's go to these, uh, to a Twitter thread that he he wrote recently. Uh, and this is in response to um, the uh, killing of Ricky Cobb, a black uh, motorist who was killed by state troopers in Minneapolis. Let's hear what Dean Phillips had to say. A thread. I've heard from many about the shooting of Ricky Cobb from the spouse of a police officer who goes to sleep each night worried about whether she'll see her husband in the morning to parents of color with the same worry about seeing their children in the morning. If we don't start having uncomfortable conversations about these truths, officers will not feel supported. Criminals will continue to cause mayhem and people in our communities will feel divided and unsafe. We can begin by acknowledging the fear the fear that an officer must feel when a felon, possibly armed, abruptly speeds off, risking everyone's lives. The fear that black and brown motorists feel from decades of personal and communal experience and unaddressed injustices. And the fear we all feel about a culture of brazen crime, impunity, and a criminal justice system that's clearly broken. We can fix it with consequences, rehabilitation, and investment in people, communities, and education that reduces the despair that leads to crime. Now, what's interesting is he had all of those quotes. He had the like one uh, slash four indicating that he was going to have four tweets, but I guess he he needed to add this final uh, statement. So he turned it into an out of five Twitter thread. It just doesn't have to be this way. We must, we all must do better. And that includes me. He's obviously running. I mean, and maybe he won't actually enter, but I mean, that was, this is obviously the whole thing is a trial balloon to see if you can get donors. I mean, even the way he was talking there, and I think it was Face the Nation, you had, what is he called, the anger-nomics or whatever he called it, or uh, people attacking each other, not attacking issues, attacking problems. He's got all these little lines, and then he's putting out these, you know, sort of both sizing type things here, you know, centrist or whatever. Maybe the fact that Joe Manchin is wavering on the no labels case. Maybe he's trying to put himself out there. Hey, Dean Phillips might be a guy you might want to look at. Uh, super rich people with a weird centrist thing. I mean, is anyone asking for that? I, I mean, it just seems, it's like, who wants this? But anyway, I, that maybe doesn't matter. That's the whole nature of our politics is who wants any of it, to be honest with you. But uh, either way, I find it to be, I mean, there's a couple things. One, I guess there's from a horse race perspective, a certain interest to it, right? Because- um, at the end of the day, the fact that the dam is starting to break now on Biden, right? Like the question was, was anyone challenge him? You know, RFK, Marion Williamson, who you mentioned, have already been sidelined by the media as quote unquote serious challengers, whatever other people think. So there is always a question of, does that mean that no one will want to? Are they worried about being accused of being a sideshow, this, that, and the third? But I think the fact that someone who's, you know, relatively is a congressman, he's in the century, you know, I don't know, someone who you wouldn't necessarily expect to say this is now starting to say it, I think is a sign that more and more people like would actually like to see what else is out there and who else is out there. So perhaps the Democratic primary is not, you know, 
said and done yet. I mean, like, I think that's the other aspect. But, you know, then the tertiary issue is the people who I think are most frustrated with Biden. I'm not sure what they're looking for is like a centrist compromise candidate because that is Biden. If only they were a status quo centrist candidate. Yeah. And also, even and the people who do want that, who are against Biden, it's not about the politics. It's they're looking for someone who isn't in cognitive decline, um, which apparently seems to be the theme of our politics. I mean, you have you have Biden, you got Mitch McConnell, Dianne Feinstein. I think there's the guy, the head of the the, uh, the ranking Democrat on the Agricultural Committee. I think it's David Scott. Uh, there's an article in Politico about how they basically have taken away a lot of the discussions on the farm bill from him because they he, they feel that he's not cognitively there. And it's just like amazing that we have a political system with like wide a wide range of people, many of all of them that we just mentioned in significant leading positions, obviously in 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 you know cognitive decline. Where like if that was your grandparent, you would not want them out there doing. Well, I take that back because their actual grandkids do because they're all living off the gravy train of, of knowing this, which is something that people don't talk about enough. But that is a big factor. People say, why do these old people stay in politics so long? Because they built up a whole economy of just like bottom feeders around them that everything they do is like the Hunter Biden, uh, you know, uh, I hate to single him out. I mean, all of them, you know, all these these relatives of politicians who go around and make money off their other uh, off their their, you know, reputation of maybe he can get me in or whatever. And then they don't want anyone to drop out because that's their whole life. You know what I'm saying? Once they leave, because they never have done anything ever on their own. So um, I guess anyone who's not their family, if you thought if you're like a regular person and you said Joe Biden is your grandfather, you would be like, yeah, we got to get him some help. Like he should definitely not be the president of America or Diane Feinstein who's the worst of the world. I mean, she doesn't even know where she is. It's honestly, I, I don't really feel that bad for her because she's a rich, powerful person. Um, but it is sad to see somebody who is being put in a position that they're not really prepared to take on. Um, and here we are yet again, you know, it's, it's wild. I mean, everyone is, is so old and that's not saying anything against senior citizens at all, but like it's 2023 and like the average age in Congress, I don't know what it is, but I bet you it's over 60. I mean, it's wild. Someone look it up. Someone in the audience, look up average age in Congress and put it in the comments. Apparently, most of the younger people aren't doing anything in there anyway, though. So maybe it's not the age issue. All the so-called young stars on both sides are mainly duds. So, well, this is great, and we have we have so much more to bring you, Eugene. We you are a real Renaissance man, and we could talk about so many things. So let's see. Do we want to go to Niger first, or you want to go to the New York Times McCarthyism first? Listen, this is the Katie Halper show. You tell I know, me. No, but you're the guest. Well, that's I, I'm here to follow your lead. Why don't we start with Neil McCarthy, New York Times? So we have an article from the New York Times. Do you want to say anything about this article before we jump into it? Let's dive right in. So here's an article, how a U.S. tech mogul used nonprofits to sow Chinese propaganda. And this was published by the wonderful New York Times. Yes. It's about Neville Roy Singham. And his wife is Jody Evans of Code Pink. And here they are. Here's the photo of them. Um, A global web of Chinese propaganda leads to a U.S. tech mogul. The Times unraveled a financial network that stretches from Chicago to Shanghai and uses American nonprofits to push Chinese talking points worldwide. All right. So let me show you uh, what this uh, piece says. A New York Times investigation found it is part of, oh, sorry, they talk. They start off by talking about this uh, group called No Cold War, 
And they say, on the surface, No Cold War is a loose collective run mostly by American and British activists who say the West rhetoric against China has distracted from issues like climate change and racial injustice. In fact, a New York Times investigation found it is part of a lavishly funded influence campaign that defends China and pushes its propaganda. At the center is a charismatic American millionaire, Neville Roy Singham, who is known as a socialist benefactor of far-left causes. So... Let me show you what they say he has done. The son of a leftist academic, Archibald Singham, Mr. Singham is a longtime activist who founded the Chicago-based software consultancy ThoughtWorks. There, Mr. Singham came across as a charming showman who prided himself on creating an egalitarian corporate culture. He was unabashed about his politics. A former company technical director, Majdi Haroon, recalled Mr. Singham lecturing him on the Marxist revolutionary Che Guevara. Mr. Haroon said employees sometimes jokingly called each other comrade. In 2017, Mr. Singham married Jody Evans, a former Democratic political advisor and the co-founder of Code Pink. The wedding in Jamaica was a who's who of progressivism. Photos from the event show Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!, Ben Cohen, co-founder of Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, and V, the playwright formerly known as Eve Ensler, who wrote The Vagina Monologues. It was also a working event. The invitation described a panel discussion called the future of the left. The problem with this piece, though, is that, among many other problems, it talks about disinformation, but it doesn't actually lay out what the disinformation is. What do you think, Eugene? Yeah, I mean, that's basically it. I mean, I think there's some allusions in there and different ways to Xinjiang. I think actually maybe talking about poverty alleviation and climate change. So, I mean, that's what it's basically come down to when we're talking about this issue of quote-unquote disinformation, is the things actually don't even need to be untrue. They don't need to be, you know, things that could be based in fact. Uh, they are just, in fact, you know, the the ultimate, you know, just things that people and that the American government doesn't like. Uh, I mean, you know, the Xinjiang thing, according to the New York Times, I'm sure it's 100% decided. According to the actual factual record, it is not 100% decided. And in fact, many of the claims that have been made have been directly and distinctly challenged. And in fact, even though this is allegedly a deep oppression of, of Muslims, you know, all over the Muslim world, a number of countries and institutes have gone in and, and investigated it and come to the opposite conclusion. So it, it seems interesting to me that the vast majority of Muslim countries in the world that certainly advocate for the rights of Muslims around the world aren't as concerned about this as apparently the United States government, which doesn't really have a great record on that question. Um, and, you know, the New York Times that, of course, you know, brought us the Iraq war in many different ways, you know, you think would have a little bit of a better relationship to the facts. But um, I mean, this this sort of sleight of hand, like that's the real thing about this article. If you read it, there's actually no evidence of anything. There's no evidence whatsoever that any law is being broken because it isn't. And the only sort of, re you know, negative relationships are there's an office that's in the same office. He was at a seminar and took notes in a notebook with a hammer and sickle. There are some people who do so. I mean, like it's, I mean, it's that dumb. There's no actual relationship that would they could prove anything. So it's all just innuendo that's designed to scare people from standing up and saying anything that is uh, against the main agenda of the, the fossil fuel industry, of the military industrial complex, all these cold warriors trying to, you know, save nuclear saber rattle with China. And with Russia, I mean, the whole goal is just like all these McCarthyite scare tactics, not to find any sort of facts, but just to, you know, scare people 
around, you know, actually saying what's right and to consider collaboration with China to be some sort of crime, to, to consider arguing for peace to be some sort of crime. I mean, the whole thing is actually disgusting. And for the New York Times to put this out, I mean, you know, talk about lavishly funded networks. I mean, that's one of the most lavishly funded corporations on earth owned by an oligarchic family who's on the same company for, you know, dozens and dozens of decades. So, you know, is, is this a lavishly funded influence operation to push the views of the United States government? Because that's all they're doing in the article. But again, there's nothing in that article that's illegal. There's nothing in the article that proves any sort of connection between the Chinese government and any of the organizations that are listed in there. The tropes that are used are, are somewhat absurd, to be honest with you. I mean, I have to say Jody Evans, who is a great person, by the way, um, and who has, without any shadow of a doubt, done more to actually help human beings than all three of those reporters put together times 100. You know, is almost, I mean, the way she's presented, to me, it feels racist. You know, they basically are saying like, oh, she was great. And then she married this Jamaican guy and all these global South communists have now, you know, taken over her mind and turned her into some sort of Manchurian candidate on China. And it just shows how dumb or how ignorant and or how malicious the writers are is when they frame her, they say she once was the campaign manager for Jerry Brown. And now she's pushing pro-China talking points. I thought that was interesting, Katie, partially because on April 6th of 2023, Politico ran an article by Jer uh, Jerry Jonathan Martin that said, Jerry Brown is angry. Why is America barreling into a new Cold War? The ultimate elder statesman sees huge economic consequences to a superpower decoupling. Another serious banking failure, mortgage meltdown. We can't stabilize the world economy without China. And it goes on and on like that, him continuing to push detente, which of course he was. So in a way, it's actually 100% consistent. Right. But the whole thing is laid out in a way to make it seem like she somehow moved from the center uh, to the margins and is under the influence of these evil people, including her evil husband, uh, who, you know, must be bad because he's, you know, got this vaguely, you know, is, you know, Caribbean. It's almost like the live and let die villain in the James Bond movie in 1973, you know, some evil villain on an island um, paid for by China capturing people. So, you know, at the end of the day, the entire thing is 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 a smear job. It's disgusting. And I think we just have to keep coming back to the basic point. There is actually nothing in there proving that anyone did anything illegal or that there are any connections between the Chinese government and any of the organizations or individuals who are listed, that any of their activities or actions are being guided by that. And nothing that you can say can actually prove that. So to create an article that's designed to create that impression is obviously designed to create the an impression that is is uh, false. It's totally false. And that can only serve one goal. And that is to increase the warmongering around China. And even you look at some of the quotes that they have in there, you know, oh, well, people are taking important issues and they're actually manipulating them. Well, how is that possible? If the issue is important, should you not raise it? And it basically is to blur the lines about what is and isn't Chinese, which means that what you're going to do is you're going to shade towards the State Department. You're going to shade towards the Pentagon. You're going to not say what you really think because you're like, well, I don't think we should have nuclear war with China. But if I say that, they'll say that I'm pushing Chinese talking points. I do think we should collaborate with China on climate change. And they are the country that's putting the most money into clean energy. Well, you don't want to say that because those are Chinese talking points. How do I know that? Well, Senator Ted Cruz and Congressman Jim Comer have already sent a letter demanding that the DOJ investigate the National Resources Defense Council. One of the reasons why is because they said that China 
is a leader in clean energy, which everyone knows it is. They call that a Chinese talking point. And so at the end of the day, basically what we're seeing here is a redux of the McCarthyite 1950s, where in order to close down the policy space to create a, a very destructive Cold War that, by the way, wasn't so cold in the global South, where the U.S. was funding all these wars where millions of people were ultimately killed. But on top of that, they're trying to do the same thing again here with the possibility of nuclear war in two different countries, China and Russia, staring us down the barrel, which is obviously crazy. The climate change just destroying the entire planet, which is obviously bad. And instead of thinking, how do we collaborate and cooperate with the other major country on Earth they want to go to war with and destroy them? And how could you convince people to do something that crazy? You have to create this entire narrative that anyone who says anything that questions that is some sort of spy, some sort of whatever. And it just, it just, it just is so infuriating because it's, it's, they're either dumb, which I don't think they are. I think these people are actually very smart, which means that they're deliberately putting out these totally false hatchet job articles that are designed to kneecap actual advocacy against nuclear war and in favor of climate change and to make people seem like there's something that they're not, some sort of controlled, uh, you know, entity by China, which again, there is no evidence of that whatsoever. The New York Times could find not one shred of evidence. All they could do is have innuendo, no evidence whatsoever, no crimes whatsoever. So the whole thing is totally pernicious. I think the three authors should be ashamed of themselves. I think the editors should be ashamed of themselves. Obviously, they aren't. I want to know who they're working with to put out an article like this. They're allegedly all the news that's fit to print, and they can't find one shred of evidence that puts any connection to the thing that they're saying. Why are they doing that? Let's ask them. I mean, let's ask that. Let's ask that question. I think, to be honest with you, that some element of this is directly coming from the intelligence agencies. In the context of access journalism, I'm happy to say that. If they can say whatever they want to say, well, then let's just put it out there. In the context of access journalism, why would you do something like this if you care about journalistic integrity? You wouldn't. The only reason you would do something like this is if you want to serve an agenda. And maybe the agenda isn't. I don't have any evidence, you know, but I got about as much evidence as they have to accuse anybody else. So, yeah, these are certainly State Department talking points. Yeah. So they are spreading disinformation. Yeah, they are indeed spreading disinformation. So it's unfortunate uh, that something like this would happen. But, you know, this is I think people should go to the People's Forum website. At, I believe it's peoplesforumnyc.org, but just Google the People's Forum. There's a petition you can sign to stand up against McCarthyism and red baiting. And, you know, I think what we learned from the first McCarthyite situation, what we learned from the rise of, of fascism in Germany, is if you don't stand up right away, they will ultimately come for you. And it might seem like, oh, these far left groups like, you know, the People's Forum and Tricontinental or whatever, they're just going to get them. And Code Pink, they already have the National Resources Defense Council in their crosshairs. And that's the most mainstream of groups. So, I mean, you just got to ask yourself, I mean, for Christ's sake, the entire Republican primary is calling Biden a pro-communist Marxist. So it gives you a sense of where the country is shifting on this issue of red baiting. And if we don't stand up and push back, we're going to be in, in real trouble. I hope they watch this. I doubt they will. I mean, maybe they will because they're wondering how it's going over. But I just generally assume they don't care whatsoever. But if anyone knows any of those authors, David Fahrenholtz, the only one I can really remember. I hope you let them know how sad and sorry they are to have put their names on top of something that can't prove anything at all, but goes to try to hurt and harm the efforts and the careers of people who are just trying to, to do the right thing. I mean, you know, look at what Tricontinental Institute for Social Research is doing, trying to address the issue of hunger all around the world, trying to illuminate efforts to eliminate poverty all around the world, lifting up the struggles of the poorest people, the shack dwellers in South Africa, whose leaders are constantly assassinated, left 
and right. Uh, you know, I mean, these are the types of things that are coming out of there. So why are they being targeted? Why are they being targeted? I mean, it, it really just makes you makes you wonder what the whole purpose is behind this. So it's it's it truly is unfortunate. And it's coordinated because the Daily Beast had a piece. They're chanting for peace. You know, the last thing they did coming out against the Hiroshima and Nagasaki saying, remember what took place. We don't need another nuclear war. So you can't come out and say anything about nuclear war. You can't come out and talk about the military industrial complex and the impact it has on climate change. I mean, those are the things that Code Pink is actually doing, uh, disrupting the warmongers wherever they may go, raising the correct questions, you know, right in the face of these people, the Anthony Blinkens and the others in the world. Why are they being targeted? I mean, when there's, if there's no evidence that there, there's no evidence whatsoever, there's no story there. So it's just this fake thing that's been created to take organizations that are in individuals who are effectively pushing back against the worst forms of war propaganda, climate denialism, uh, and and so on and so forth, and trying to tar them with some brush that means people won't listen. It's un- it's really sad, and it's just like the whole region, the whole legion of liberals who in the 1950s ran in the other direction as soon as McCarthy came. As, as before, there was any issue, they were happy to associate with. Just like a lot of people, by the way, have been happy to associate with the people listed in this article until something comes out. And then all of a sudden they run in the other direction because they don't want to they don't want to act uh, get in any sort of trouble, you know, with the authorities. It's really unbelievable. Yeah. And speaking of how disgusting this article is, I just wanted to share something that they write about Jody Evans. That's just so gross. So they say Miss Evans, 68, was once a Democratic insider who managed the 1982 presidential campaign of Governor Jerry Brown. After the 2001 terrorist attacks, she reinvented herself as an activist. She became known for pink peace sign hearings and sit-ins that ended with her arrest. She helped form Code Pink to protest the looming war in Iraq. The group became notorious for disrupting Capitol Hill hearings. What is that? After the 2001 terrorist attacks, she reinvented herself. They're making it sound like this is some espionage. No, I know. I mean, they're making it sound as if somehow she didn't have anti-war politics. I didn't know Jody prior to 2001, but I feel pretty confident that she had roughly the same politics. I mean, it's not. I mean, that's the thing is they're presenting people as. And, and honestly, even if someone does change, you can't change what you do. You can't change your mind. You can't have different political positions. So it's taking all just like very basic political activities, very logical political stands and trying to take them and turn them into something different by creating this this fake, totally fake, totally false, totally unattributed, no evidence charge that basically all the people listed are Chinese spies and then make people think that they shouldn't stand up and they shouldn't say anything. I mean, it's it's shameful. I think there's also some projection that happens because they assume that to change or have ideas that are unpopular or not unpopular, that are against the um, the elite media narrative, you must be getting something for it. Like you must be have some ulterior motives, like who's paying you or he's, who is uh, giving you gifts? Like, why are you doing this? And they're just showing themselves. Like they can't imagine that people just have convictions and political ideas. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think they're so wrapped up in this sort of status quo establishment world that they can't possibly believe that anything else is true. That entire world, which is, you know, heavily shaped by this sort of, you know, postmodern academic pro-capitalist politics, but that says question all grand narratives and all that kind of nonsense, which means question every narrative except the establishment narrative, but creates this basis that sort of counter-hegemonic views and narratives are somehow illegitimate for whatever they may be, that ultimately also is, is... quite frankly, racist, because it comes from a perception that let's say something does come from China, that somehow it's illegitimate. 
as if people in China cannot have their own political thoughts and views and concepts, and that those cannot be in a neutral playing field, either right or wrong. Um, I mean, I think that in and of itself is an issue. I mean, you, it's the, you know, I saw a similar thing. I always point out to people to read this old uh, 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 article from, I think it was last year, in the New York Times, where they were profiling a woman from Guinea-Bissau, a former liberation fighter who, you know, is in favor of Russia and the war in Ukraine. And the tone of the article is so paternalistic. It's shocking. And I just thought, who is this writer? I mean, what have you ever done? This woman fought to liberate her country from Portuguese colonialism. Um, and you're they're basically mocking her um, in the context and the tone. So it just shows, I mean, the very fact that almost on all these issues, the new Cold War with China, the NATO proxy war in Ukraine, all around the world, these things are deeply unpopular by people of all political persuasions. Most people want to go in a different way. And none of that really penetrates the reality of the New York Times and these individuals. They're so conceited and so wrapped up in their own knowledge production, their elite Harvard University circles, which again, I mentioned because David Fahrenholt and his private hedge fund executive wife both went there. And her father, by the way, was a top level executive. They're so wrapped up in these hyper establishment, rich people, U.S. 1% narratives that think America should run the world and everyone else should sit down and shut up, that if anyone does anything else against it, that somehow you must be paid and that we can write an article full of innuendo. I mean, I don't really know anything about the guy who, who, write, who is the New York Times person. I'm sure they'd be very mad if I wrote some sort of article talking about that they're all controlled by the CIA and the State Department by using... This guy was once in a place that was there. He had an American flag pen on his lapel. One time, he even went to the White House. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like... It's completely ridiculous. And only in the context of things that go against the narrative of the U.S. establishment can it even be presented in this kind of way. Anything that's challenging the establishment, they say you must have 8,000 pages of footnotes. If you say that someone is influenced by this person, you have to have the secret video of them shaking hands like John DeLorean, you know, putting the money in the, the suitcase for the cocaine. I mean, it's 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 you don't even know what to do with these things. But again, you can go to the website of the People's Forum in New York, uh, go to the People's Forum, check them out, Google that, put that in, sign the petition to stand up against red baiting and McCarthyism. We don't just have to stand for this kind of thing. You know, we can we can fight back, we can push back, people can stand up for what's right. And if we learn from what's happened in the past and these red scares, you know, we just don't have a choice. I mean, because so many fantastic things that have gone on have been destroyed. I mean, the civil rights movement was set back by 10 years because of McCarthyism. The labor movement was completely destroyed and defanged because of McCarthyism. You want to know why your wages have stacked? All the things that these people want to have happened. There it is. It wouldn't have happened had people done something and stood up when the time was right. But it's always easy to stand up when it's when there's no consequences. It's only hard when there are consequences. And this is what this article is trying to make it do. They want to make it seem like there are consequences. If you say anything about Ukraine, you're a Russian agent. If you say anything about China, you're a Chinese spy. Everyone's a Manchurian candidate. You can't trust anyone. There's disinformation all over the internet. The whole thing is designed to scare people into inaction around the issues that they know are right. And I think that that's what we have to stand up against. This is totally fact-free, totally nonsensical smearing going on on almost every critical issue facing us, you know, on the planet. Yeah, I mean, we saw the New York Times obviously lied about the Iraq war. And I wrote a piece at FAIR about Sidney Ember and her disgusting attacks on Bernie Sanders which I'll link to, and I'll link to the petition that, that Eugene mentioned, and here it is. I just want to show you. So McCarthyism is back. Together we, together we can stop it. Um, and you can find this at uh, the People's Forum and Tricontinental. I'll put a link in. But this is a great open letter, and you can sign it. I've signed it. A bunch of great people have, have signed it. And it says, we stand together against the rise of a new McCarthyism that is targeting peace activists, critics of U.S. foreign policy, 
and Chinese Americans, despite increased intimidation, we remain steadfast in our mission to foster peace and international solidarity, countering the native the narrative of militarism, hostility, and fear. And um, here you can go and join these great names. So we'll put a link to that in the description. Um, well, you know, it's interesting, Eugene, because you mentioned the um, uh, insinuations about uh, the writers at the New York Times. And let's see, I, I did find the, um, the wedding announcement uh, for at the New York Times for, for the journalist who you keep referring to. Farenthold? Farenthold, yeah. Yeah, uh, the hedge fund executive. Yeah, so let's take a look at this. Um, window. Okay. Uh, Elizabeth Lewis and David Farenthold. All right, let's see what we learned from them. So um, she is the daughter of Marilyn McGrath Lewis and Harry R. Lewis of Brookline, Massachusetts. Um, he's the son of Gene and Peter Farenthold of Houston. Uh, we don't really care about who's uh, yeah. officiating. But uh, they met at Harvard, mm, big intelligence school. Uh, yeah, I was a management consultant for Booz Allen Hamilton. Yeah, well, I was going to, that was what I was getting most to. connected to the military industrial complex firms that there is out there. Anyone in the DC area, you know exactly what I'm talking yes. about. So Booz. the bride was a management consultant until last year for Booz Allen Hamilton. Then I'm going to ask you about them. The consulting firm in McLean, Virginia. Her father, who was the dean of Harvard College, yep. now is a Gordon McKee uh, professor of computer science at Harvard. Yeah, uh, but here's the, endowment. Yeah, and here's the other uh, good thing that you'll appreciate about uh, his father, the the groom, the journalist. Um, his father is the managing director for risk management at Continental Airlines in Houston. So, uh, yeah, Booz Allen Hamilton is what stood out for me. So she was a management consultant for them. Yeah. What What do we know about them? I mean, you know, listen, I don't have the whole thing in front of me, but I think the thing that we know about Booz is Booz is one of the earliest major contractors around different government things. They're deeply tied to the sort of, you know, entire military industrial intelligence contractor reality there in Northern Virginia. They have a huge footprint there. So if you're a management consultant at Booz, you're directly tied into the heart of the military industrial complex. And, and like I, I mentioned, he's also a hedge fund executive um, at this stage in time. Her father, of course, is the dean of Harvard College, which is, you know, basically a hedge fund with an educational uh, component to it. I believe you said his father was the head of risk management. Yeah, uh, for Continental Airlines. Airlines um, which is, you know, obviously a major corporation. So basically here you have the 1% of the American establishment launching a scurrilous attack on a gentleman who is not from a rich and powerful background. I mean, certainly his father was a very influential um, you know, academic in the global South and in the third world, but, you know, essentially a professor at Howard University, not some high level person who made his own money by building his own company, who sold that company. Uh, I thought this is what you're supposed to do in America. And then completely legally and completely openly supported causes that he openly supports and is known for advocating. I mean, what is, what is wrong with that? It's 100% legal. You don't have to agree with him, but I thought this is what people are supposed to do. I mean, isn't that what uh, Andrew Carnegie said? You should spend the first half of your life making money and the second half giving it away. I thought that was the American way to do things, 
right? Being a philanthropist and putting your money behind the causes you believe in. But, you know, these do-nothing rich kids uh, who probably never had to work for anything a day in their life, who had everything handed to them with a silver spoon in their mouth, uh, you know, are daring to attack people who are, are standing up at a tough time to fight against, uh, you know, the, the possibility of nuclear war, to talk about what needs to happen in terms of poverty alleviation. I mean, they're acting in, they act at different points in the article as if it's crazy to write articles about poverty alleviation in China when they brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in a couple decades. Eugene, how much did you get paid to say that? I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, it really is unbelievable. Sorry, I cut you off. You were making a very good point. No, it's fine. I mean, it's just like, you know, you look at sub-Saharan Africa, which is drowning in poverty. I actually think we need probably more about how China is bringing people out of poverty, quite frankly, you know, to talk about the problems that people are facing around the globe. So ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, they couldn't prove anything at all. So they just went with some smear job that, again, doesn't prove anything at all. There is no illegal activity. There is no evidence whatsoever of any direct link between the Chinese government and any of the individuals who are listed. Everything is innuendo and side stuff. And none of it is direct. There's no evidence that anyone is being directed by anyone. But they've written 3,000 words trying to make it seem like it is. And they've defamed people um, you know, in, in many, many negative ways. And I mean, we mentioned Jody Evans, but I, I personally feel deeply affronted by that because she is someone I know. I mean, Roy is also someone I know, but the way she's presented as some sort of person who was captured by her husband. I mean, what kind of sexist nonsense is that? That like, until she was married to this guy, she never would have done any of these things or thought any of these things or done any of these things. She doesn't have her own mind. She doesn't know who she is. Um, I mean, it's just really just on so many different Levels. And I think she's the only white person even mentioned in the article. The rest is just, you know, uh, uh, you know, people from the global south. So, I mean, it's just these evil. I mean, it's like some heart of darkness, these evil, dark people who have kidnapped this white woman and brainwashed her into having some sort of other politics and are trying to destroy America through a completely <laughs> through a set of totally legal entities. I mean, everything about it is is really unbelievable. But I think we should just keep talking about what's going on with the New York Times and who these people are um, and what they represent and why they would do this. And it's not surprising that people coming from the type of pedigree you just laid out from the top 1% of America would be producing an agenda that is 100% in line with how the 1% is trying to continue to dominate the globe and prevent any serious action on climate change, any serious action on global poverty or global hunger, or any serious action for the reduction of nuclear tensions and militarism in the world stage. I hope they they really should watch this because this would be a great thing for them to listen to, but they'll probably be too embarrassed to actually watch it. Someone should look it up. One of them, I think, used to work at The Intercept and I think was one of those lab league people. I don't know. Um, But, you know, The Intercept, we know about that. Pierre Omidar, and we know his ties as well, um, you know, to the NED and other type of cutout type agencies. So, you know, who is she and what's going on with that? We're talking about, you know, you want to do innuendo, let's do it. Um, And it's like people might, they probably get upset if they saw it, but that's what they're doing to other people. This is also, it's it's a coordinated smear campaign because there's also a very ridiculous article at Daily Beast. Which preceded this. Which preceded this. U.S. tech mogul bankrolls pro-Russia, pro-China news network. Neville Singham's vast dark money network has fueled breakthrough news and a raft of other online outlets pushing Moscow and Beijing's favorite narratives. The thing about the narratives argument that's so pernicious is that all it takes, and we saw this in 2016, you are working for the Russians if you say anything that is critical of the United States. Yeah. Because clearly that's what Russia wants you to do. Like literally talking about Black Lives Matter is a Russian talking point, according to these people. You're correct. That is exactly what they're saying. 
And again, people, we need to draw the lines directly back to the original McCarthyism because people want to say that that's over the top. That's the same thing they did. You know, you look at 1949, 1950, 51, 52, 53, basically everything regarding civil rights, any mass protest around civil rights was considered communist. All the civil rights groups that were not affiliated with the Communist Party actually backed off of their most aggressive advocacy because they did not want to be accused of being communist. I mean, the NAACP had to start putting out lawn signs that said NAACP, not communist in different places, because anything affiliated with civil rights was allegedly affiliated with communism and certainly anything that was affiliated with mass protest. And it set back the struggle for civil rights, maybe 10 years, quite frankly. If you look at where you were in 1945 and look at 1955 and the Montgomery bus boycott happened, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, 45 to let's say 48 was a time of great explosion of civil rights activity that was all completely, basically totally cut off because of the impact of McCarthyism in, in the broader scheme of the country. So many of the greatest activists, W.B. Du Bois, you know, at that time was the greatest living intellectual in America, had his entire career destroyed. Paul Robeson, the most famous uh, entertainer on the globe at that time, had his career completely and totally destroyed and his health destroyed along with it um, and driven into essentially obscurity. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on and on about, you know, individuals um, who's, you know, just were not able to do anything because they were deemed to be quote unquote communists and some were and some weren't, but it was, it wasn't illegal for them to be quite frankly. Um, it was 100% legal if they wanted to be a communist or a Marxist and a member of the communist party USA. I mean, even Martin Luther King Jr. of course was heavily attacked and red baited. Now the times had changed and they weren't able to succeed, but he had to also himself take some bold stance against red baiting uh, and in terms of the attempts to control his staff and other things like that. So ultimately, at the end of the day, this is a long script and that labor radicalism, civil rights are always associated with these red scares. And the most radical people who want the best wages and the best working conditions for workers, who want the quickest and most substantive end to racism in America, who want the basically the fairest possible society where everyone has the best possible chance to live and thrive the best they can become the first victims of these kind of, of, of attacks. And that's exactly what's happening here. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, the New York times, these liberals are just as complicit. I mean, you know, Trump is open about it. You know, he's making these crazy claims about communism and Marxism that are totally fake and totally scurrilous. And the Republicans are obviously on a hardcore McCarthyite witch hunt, but these liberals and the people in the New York times in a way are just as bad. Because they're trying to act like they actually care about progressive issues when you read the New York Times editorial page. But at the end of the day, you know, they're also just as complicit with these sorts of politics that prevent that kind of, of uh, you know, substantive change from coming to to the country. Yeah. I mean, the other aspect of, of the McCarthyism is that it taints and shuts people's brains down. So you're not even supposed to look at what someone's saying because they're just persona non grata. They are just tainted with this brush. They are... Russian agents or Chinese age, uh, agents, or they sympathize with those countries, they're being paid by them, or they've been like their brains have been uh, scrambled and infected by them. And the reason that that's so dangerous is because then people really don't look at what someone's saying, or they look at anything that someone's saying as, as clearly the result of them being paid off by someone. Yeah, I mean, you know, famed New York Times journalist, David Halberstam wrote the famous book, The Best and the Brightest, about the Vietnam War. And this is basically the exact point he made is what you just said, is that the impact of McCarthyism on eliminating anybody who actually knew anything about Asia essentially set the stage that the only people making policy were these hardcore coal warriors who were going to continue the Vietnam War, even when they knew it couldn't succeed, because it wasn't about the Vietnam War succeeding. It was about essentially just bleeding out the Soviets and waging a war for the, uh, the, the sort of containment for containment's sake. But they talk about how 
many, he talks about it in the book, and it's a fantastic book, um, and I encourage everyone to read it, The Best and the Brightest by David Halberstam, about how basically the people making policy knew nothing about what was going on, and were just making decisions essentially just on vibes because they hated communism and they thought this was going to work. And anyone who could have told them, well, this is definitely not going to work. And it's actually going to maybe backfire on you in a major way had already been written out of the picture 10, 15, 20 years before, because they were deemed to be sympathetic to communism, uh, the so-called China hands. And let's remember, we talk about China, that this was the proximate issue with McCarthyism was the, the who lost China debate after the Chinese revolution in 1949. And it immediately gets blamed on the so-called China hands, who were a range of individuals who were working inside and outside the State Department who had become very influential because they had long experience inside of China. And they were making the point in the policy discussion that Chiang Kai-shek was a renegade, a gangster, um, who had no desire to actually improve the lives of the Chinese people, and that his, his, his government was bound to collapse, and the communists were guaranteed to win because the policies of the Communist Party Party of China were broadly popular amongst the hundreds of millions of peasants who wanted the land to be redistributed, the workers who wanted wealth to be redistributed and wanted to say and how their own factories were won, and the broad Chinese people who were tired of the country having been humiliated and divided for a hundred years um, and you know just completely destroyed by colonialism and the so-called open door policy, and they wanted a country that would unite and be strong also against the outside. And the only people who brought that were the communists. And the communists were saying to America, starting in 1944, you can look at this, listen, we want to work with America. We don't. We maybe don't agree on everything, but we feel we can have a good relationship here. Yes, we have a good relationship with the Soviet Union, but we have our own minds. We're our own people. No reason why we can't work together. We're working pretty well together now during World War II. Um, the so-called service mission there goes to Yunnan and, and meets with them. Um, with Mao Zedong and the leadership there. So they're saying, we want to work with you. We we're trying to do what we, we want to do. Like, what's going on? Let's come together here. You know, you have people like Lu Liang Mo, who was writing in the black newspaper, the Pittsburgh Courier, representing the Chinese communist movement, talking about how China... Um, you know, shared a vision with many Black Americans to try to end colonialism, to end racism, and that perhaps the progressive movements of the of the two countries working together could have a big impact on the majority of the world that had been trapped in colonialism um, for so long, and that it could have a positive impact on Jim Crow in America. I mean, all these things that were good. But ultimately, because of the issue of the U.S. feeling that, quote unquote, losing China was a sign that the so-called American century, which was the U.S. plan that really started to be developed in 1943 um, to make sure that they could dominate in the place of the former European colonial powers, that that could be cut short by a powerful Chinese communist movement. So they concocted this witch hunt, this McCarthyite nonsense um, to destroy anyone who had raised the alarm correctly and had argued for a logical position and then make sure that they had no influence over how to move forward in terms of the, 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 the policies that would happen at that time and to make sure that only the most warmongering you know, imperialist voices would be able to uh, have any purchase hold in the establishment conversation. But again, it started right there in a similar way with China. So there's a lot of connections between the past and the contemporary reality when we look at this and we look at, again, what was lost in McCarthyism. You look at this issue that we started the show with, the UAW and the workers who were fighting for their own basic rights. The whole reason the labor movement was totally defanged was McCarthyism. The most militant and the most radical unions, the most radical union leaders, the most radical rank and file leaders, and the most radical organizers were all thrown out of the labor movement on the purpose of being communists, which meant the only people who were left no disrespect here uh, to the dead, were people like Walter Reuther, who ultimately what they wanted to do is make a deal 
with the bosses. That was not ultimately good for the workers and to keep that deal going, to have labor peace so that the system could be stable because they also hated communism and they felt better to let their own workers not get what they truly deserve than to, to have too much labor radicalism. So the people who would really fight, the people in the labor movement who were against racism, who were against the use of the seniority system to keep black people out of the trades, they were all kicked out. Uh, you know, I mean, this is the reality of what was happening. The people who were willing to go to the mat for, you know, people like Willie McGee, uh, the Martinsville set, uh, the Martinsville's, uh, uh, seven, I believe it was the Trenton six, these people who were facing these legal lynch mobs in the wake of world war two, uh, from these Jim Crow forces who wanted to install on top of, uh, the reinstall on top of the country, this Jim Crow fascist dictatorship that had started to break apart a little during world war two. Uh, you know, they were thrown out and they said, anyone who's for civil rights is a communist. Um, so ultimately, you know, you get, it's very dangerous and you can see it now in climate change that right now they're, I mean, you know, they're trying to do anything possible to stop people who are against nuclear war, who want to take aggressive action on climate change from saying anything whatsoever, because they know that the only way to do those things is in course for there to be collaboration, not uh, uh, confrontation between China and, and America. And the reality is, is no matter what the Biden administration says, they're lying. They say that they're not for confrontation. Their policy is directly confrontational. Uh, and I think that we have to acknowledge that. Why are the Marines making all these preparations to survive a nuclear first or second strike in terms of their forward deployments inside of Asia? Why is the United States putting aircraft carriers through the Taiwan Strait? Why are we sending aircraft carriers to Vietnam? Why are we getting involved in the issue of a Coast Guard vessel in the Philippines vis-a-vis -vis China? Why is it that we send a nuclear submarine with nuclear missiles to dock in South Korea? Why are we pushing the rearmament of all of these various countries in the region? Why have we created this absurd AUKUS so-called alliance where Australia is now spending all of its money to buy nuclear submarines from America to push a war against China? Why are we cultivating hatred between India and China as opposed to hoping that the two countries can work together and try to mediate? I mean, every single thing about the U.S. strategy in Asia is 100% aggressive, 100% offensive, 100% aimed at containing China. The fact that they're trying to destroy all of China's major industries and uh, 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 you know, even Americans. I mean, the reason why most of these American funds are invested in China and why a lot of your retirement, whoever's out there with these 401ks is sitting on China is because the investment funds can't even make their returns unless they invest in China. So America's so great, but the 401k has got to invest in China in order to make sure that they can pay out to old people the money that they've paid in over all this time. I mean, that should tell you something, but they're trying to destroy that too by stopping the investments in China. So they're trying to destroy everything related to this. And then they say, oh, but we're not for confrontation. And then they wonder why you can't get collaboration. Oh, they won't return our phone calls. Who knew? You know, or why when John Kerry goes over there, nothing really happens. So ultimately, you know, if we want to save the planet, if we want to not have a nuclear war, if we want to address hunger and poverty, the U.S. and China are going to have to collaborate. And if they don't collaborate, the world's going to be headed in a very negative direction. But unfortunately, both both parties in Congress, everyone in the White House, the vast majority of these shills in the mainstream media, they don't care about any of that. Uh, you know, they just want to live in this, this space, in this moment of U.S. unipolar dominance, and they're fiddling while Rome burns. They're just like Emperor Nero, who I'm sure had many hangers on himself, who, as Rome was burning, said, no, 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 Emperor, it's not burning. Let's just keep playing the violin. If playing the violin were saber-rattling and racist. Yes, and even happened in Rome, which I don't think it did. It might not be historically accurate. It's okay. I think you hit the landing. Thank you.
just one thing. Yeah, but once wouldn't it be funny if they came back to you and were like, really? There weren't even violins then. That's that's this guy is not just a Chinese disinformationist. He doesn't know his history. I would love it if they knew some Roman history. But I also want to note the guy who wrote that Daily Beast article also just recently wrote a hit piece on Cornell West about how he owes taxes and apparently back child support. So I forget, I actually have already forgotten that guy's name because he's like a minor loser working for the Daily Beast, which just means you are a minor loser. Um, and you will never do anything worth talking about ever. And history will never remember you for any reason whatsoever. And, you know, maybe even your own family won't as your grave is overgrown by weeds and other things as no one comes to tend it. William Bretterman. So that's all he does is he just goes around and writes random hit pieces that comport with the centrist democratic establishment leadership. I'm sure he's paid relatively well. Um, but yeah, it's complete, it's complete hack. Unbelievable. He has two pieces on Cornet West. Wow. Look at that. It's a growth economy. That's the corruption we need to really be looking at. <laughs> you got the president's son shaking down executives in other countries. But, you know, God forbid Cornell West had some major tax issue. And I don't know, maybe he isn't paying his child support. I really don't know. I can't say. But just the way he lands it at the end of the article is like such a low blow. Like, who is he? Yeah, I don't, of course, pay for that outlet. So I can't see how he I, I had read it in the past. I think they put it on a shamefully on a left wing website, which was really not cool. Yeah, I think they did. But it's, okay. it's, it's not illogical because, you know, listen. Sadly, I mean, it's like how Howie Hawkins was quoted in that New York Times article. Yeah, what the hell? I mean, you know, doing his best Whitaker Chambers impression. I guess he's so desperate for, you know, some sort of publicity that he is you know, saying. this. But I'm not surprised that Howie Hawkins was quoted because Howie Hawkins has long time been anti against China. Um, he views China as maybe the worst in America uh, when you listen to some of the rhetoric. But it's not that surprising because the reality is, is the vast majority of people on the left are not in favor of this new Cold War mentality, whatever they think about China. Uh, and I think a lot of these leftists who really want to be on the same side as the anti-China crusade, who want to cozy up and be cheek by jowl with U.S. imperialism, uh, you know, they don't want to do anything difficult. I mean, that's the vision of so-called, you know, socialism for these Howie Hawkins type people. It's a socialism where you never have to ask any hard questions and where there is never anything wrong in the world. That's the only thing that can ever be socialist. Like, you know, they're all socialist until something happens that they feel it's hard to defend in mainstream America. And then it's like, oh, well, that's not really socialism, you know? Um, and they're always looking for all these different ways, uh, you know, to, to parse it, this, that, and the third. They're going to quote Trotsky. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. But, you know, honestly, when Trotsky was leading the Red Army in the Soviet Union, the Howie Hawkins of the world, who have always, you know, come from a tradition that holds up Trotsky and Lenin as well, uh, they would not have defended them. Because the reality is when you look at that time, 1918, 1919, 1920, the bourgeois press was screaming bloody murder, especially about Trotsky, by the way, who is the most demonized of all of them, including with a lot of anti-Semitic posters. But they said the Bolsheviks are bloodthirsty. They're killing tens of thousands of people. The Red Terror is terrible. Look at them. They murdered the Tsar's family. They're destroying the country. They're paid agents, the German government, all these other things that were being said. Hard for me to believe that the Howie Hawkinses of the world would actually stand up to that now when the same sort of rhetoric is being used. And they can't even not only do the least, but they actually go ahead and are part of it. And how sad for the New York Times that that's the only person they could get to say something negative uh, about Code Pink. All the people who are out there, allegedly Code Pink, according to the article, Code Pink has alienated so many different people. And I think he alludes to the fact that people didn't want to talk to him. But the only person he could find was Howie Hawkins. So pretty shameful, but not that surprising. 
because I think it's a whole school of leftism in America that ultimately is afraid to challenge U.S. imperialism. They're afraid to challenge the consensus and the narrative of U.S. imperialism, and they throw around Stalin and this, that, and the third to hide behind something happened 70 years in the past to defame anyone else uh, longer than that, actually, and without actually addressing any of the actual issues. Socialism is only what they believe it is in their little academic seminars, their pseudo-academic journals, um, and, you know, their tiny little breakout groups that they're having at different little conferences. But anything that's actually someone trying to build something in the real world, then they're against that. Uh, you know, and anything that's happening, I mean, you know, okay, so so Code Pink is a problem, but Howie Hawkins can support Zelensky? Of course. I mean, you know, Zelensky better than Code Pink? I mean, I you, and, and I'm, I, I don't think I'm picking on him because the fact that he would put his name in there um, is is shameful, quite frankly. And it's a slander on the Green Party, quite frankly. He was their 2020 candidate, um, since the vast majority of Green Party members certainly don't agree with that kind of, you know, new Cold War language Carthyite smear rhetoric. I mean, that's for absolute certain. So anyway, you know, a whole range of people and a whole range of people who were sharing it. Uh, so anyway, you talk about that Daily Beast article being shared. Yeah. Was there something that was particularly egregious about it? Because I actually do have it open. I, I can't even remember. I mean, I, I, I this thing in one ear, not the other. I mean, it's such a fact-free hit job. Who knows? There's probably a lot of stuff in there I could comment on, but it's maybe not even worth it. All, all that you need to know is that it's it's just total, again, proving absolutely nothing, nothing illegal, nothing proving any sort of connection to the Chinese government, just, you know. Well, this has been so great, but I did promise people some analysis of um, Niger. Do you mind doing a quick thing on that? I mean, because you're so prolific, you could talk about so many things, but. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, we can definitely talk briefly. About- I also want to, want to reconnect this, since we're talking about it, I'd be remiss not to bring up the Uhuru group. Yes, who are being literally indicted, charged with being Russian agents, basically, because they have political views that people find reprehensible, even though much of the global South has those views also. They are critical of NATO. They see this as a proxy war. But of course, they have to be doing this at the behest of Russia because black radicals can't have their own political ideas. Yeah, I think they said they did like a... What the Justice Department is alleging is that they only made a... Uh, petition on reparations because of of Russia, which, if you know anything about the Uhuru movement, is laughable. Um, they've probably been talking about reparations since the Justice Department lawyer who drafted that was even born. And I also just want to caution people in these cases. They're saying that the Uhuru movement did X, Y, and Z. They've released some documents. But let's see what they can actually prove in court when it goes to trial, because a lot of this is also designed in these court cases is you put a lot of stuff out there and it makes it sound really bad, but then it's not, they can't prove it, which is why, by the way, just for the record, for anyone who's listening, this is why you never talk to the cops. You always say you want a lawyer, no matter what, because no matter how bad they make it look, it doesn't mean they're telling the truth and it doesn't mean that they can prove anything they're saying. And the whole goal is just to get people talking. So, you know, they made all these accusations against the Uhuru movement, but they haven't had a chance to prove any of them in court. And so everything they're saying, as far as I'm concerned, is completely and totally unproven. It's just U.S. government propaganda and and and, and honestly, information. Yeah. And even if some of what they're saying is is true, it's so ridiculous to say that because they were dealing with some random guy in Russia and the amounts of money they're talking about are like, and again, I'm not saying any of this is true, but like $500. Even if it were to be true. The reality is the Uhuru movement is at the same politics the entire time they've been around, you know, since the 1970s. Their politics have not changed at all since I have, you know, entered politics in 2002. 
And I can't possibly imagine they're doing anything because some other government is telling them to do it. It's just, it's not plausible. It's not plausible. You did mention Africa. So shifting gears kind of, but not so much. Tell us what's happening there in Niger. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.